Well, good morning again and welcome. Uh, it's great to see you here this morning. I hope you've come ready to meet with the Lord. The scripture tells us that God dwells in the praises of his people. It also tells us that every word of scripture is breathed by God. And so that we can have the confidence that when we open God's word together, he is speaking to us. He's encouraging us. His life is being shared with us. Uh, I invite you to uh, grab a Bible or open your smartphone uh, to Luke chapter 19. We're going to be looking at verses 45 all the way through to chapter 20, verse 44. Now, before you get up, <laughs> before you get up, I want to say, I know this is a lot, all right? I know this is a lot. Which means, for those of you who like to get into the little details, you're going to be a little bit frustrated. There's going to be things in here you're going to be like, oh, I wish we had time. We don't have time. For those of you who are like, that's a lot. I don't know if I can take that much, please. I just like little, little small portions. Just, it's all one picture, all right? All, all one picture. So I encourage you to get into story mode in your mind and try to visualize what's going on. And part of the way we're going to do that this morning is we actually are using some videos from this group called LUMO. And LUMO, what they do is they, they film people acting out the scenes in the gospel accounts. And they have someone read the word of God over it. So that's how we're going to do our scripture reading this morning. Uh, we are in a series called uh, The Way of the King. And it's the last third of Luke's gospel. And here, Jesus takes the spotlight. He takes the center stage. And we zoom in on him as he returns to Jerusalem, the place he last visited when he was 12 years old as a child, according to Luke's gospel. And as Jesus enters Jerusalem and he be, the, the tension and the conflict begins to heighten between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. And it made me think about how do Australians deal with conflict? And there's this phrase that came to mind that I just, it's an Australian phrase. I don't know the origin of it. I, 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 some of you can sort of enlighten me after the service if you want, but it's a great phrase. It's been said to me a few times uh, and, and I hear it's bantied around. Maybe you've heard of it. It's called, pull your head in. <laughs> Raise your hand if you've heard that phrase. If I use that phrase. Anyone had it said to them? No, you don't have to. <laughs> All right, that's good, that's good. All right, uh, well, we know the phrase, you know, pull your head in, and I don't get quite the origin of it or the derivation of it, but the picture is like, hey, you're sticking your nose in business where it doesn't belong. That's sort of the, the, the sense that I get as an outsider to the culture. And so the idea is, you don't have any authority here. You don't have any jurisdiction here. Well, we're coming to a conflict over jurisdiction and over authority, and we've titled this message, The King at His Court. The King at His Court. That's Jesus coming back to Jerusalem, and as he comes to Jerusalem, Luke puts him immediately in the temple. Immediately in the temple. And we're going to watch what happens as Jesus not just enters the city of God, but enters the house of God. And we're going to watch what unfolds there. The big question this morning is, who can tell us how to worship? There's two ways you can ask that question. You can ask that question with an inquiring and a curious mind. Who can tell us? Who can tell us how to worship? This is something we don't know how to do. We, we're not sure. I'm not, I don't quite understand what I'm supposed to be and how I'm supposed to relate to God. Who can tell, who can tell us how to worship? Or we can... We can read it another way. We can say, who can tell us how to worship? Isn't that, a, isn't that a private matter? Isn't that something that you and I are personally responsible for determining? I decide what I worship. I decide how I worship. I decide when. I decide what that looks like. We're living in an age that, that, that I think leans a lot more into the latter way of reading that question than into the former way of reading that question. Who can tell us how to worship? Another way to put it is, who has jurisdiction over our souls? You 
If worship is about the bringing of the very core, the very inner aspect of a person, the, the essence of who a person is, who you are, the sum total of your thoughts, your emotions, your desires, and your will, if you combine all of that, that internal stuff of who you are, and you say, the thing you give that to, the thing that you lay that down for, that is called worship. Does somebody have jurisdiction over that? We say, oh, it's personal choice. And while there is certainly elements of personal choice, you're going to see Jesus this morning walk into that space and he's going to say, I have jurisdiction here. And so our big idea is that Jesus presides over our worship. And what I want you to understand is when we say Jesus presides over our worship, we're, I'm not just talking about what's going on here in, in the hour and a bit, hour and a half, sometimes hour and three quarters, on a, on, a, on a Sunday morning, right? I'm not just referring to that. Jesus presides over our worship. He, it's another way of saying God is the commander of your soul. Jesus is asserting his sovereignty over the thing that you do with your thoughts, your emotions, your desires, your will. He is sovereign over that. He has something to say about that. So here's where we're going this morning. Again, running with this image, the king at his court. We're going to see first, the first instance is the king cleans his court. He shows up. He asserts his authority in a strongly symbolic act that shows that he has the power. I was talking to a family member yesterday and, and we were talking about this awkward situation that, that you get in sometimes, maybe in work or maybe in school or in other places where you're, you, you're working with groups of people and, and no one really knows who has the authority. No one really knows who has the conch. If you're familiar with Lord of the Flies, no one really knows who carries the big stick. Well, this is Jesus walking into Jerusalem with a big stick, and he's saying, I hold the stick. I have the conch. I have the authority. Then we're going to see what happens, which is a series of encounters, and there are four challenges to that authority, and Jesus is going to defend it in each instance. He's going to defend it from a direct attack. Then he's going to defend it by going on the initiative, but not with the people who are attacking him, with, with the people who are listening. And then he's going to defend it against a political trap that's been set for him. And then he's going to defend it against a religious trap that's set for him, all setting up for the final scene where Jesus, again, with the authority of a teacher, raises a troubling question that points to his identity. That's where we're going today. As we prepare to go to this, uh, to see the scriptures sort of dramatically uh, portrayed for us and, and heard, read, I want you to be thinking about three groups of people as you watch this. There's three people in this scene. There's Jesus, who Luke's told us is the King and the Lord. There's the leaders, which is composed of a number of groups. Think of a power block. You have scribes, you have chief priests, you have elders, ruling elders, and you have the Sadducees, which is a sect of the religion who tended to work with the elite, and they tended to be rich and powerful. They are one entity here in this story. And the third entity is the people. The people in mass are considered effectively one character. And so as you watch this and as you go through this, I want you to, to notice these three. Jesus, the leaders of Jerusalem, and finally the people. With that, I invite you to direct your eyes to the screen as we watch this section. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, 
But you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple. The chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it, because all the people hung on his words. <laughs> so here we are in the first scene. Pretty dramatic, isn't it? I don't know how you felt. It's a bit confronting, isn't it? Jesus, we're told, he entered Jerusalem, he began to drive out those who were selling, and what he says is most important here, as he asserts his authority, he says, it is written, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers. You've probably heard this phrase before, maybe from Sunday school, maybe it just sort of rings in your ears. You're like, yeah, yeah, I, I know he said that. I want to take a moment, just sort of unpack what he means by that. Jesus is saying that the temple was meant to be a place where people could communicate with God, a place where they could engage with God. You recall that when Solomon is praying for the opening of the temple and he, he praises God that even though, even though this structure can't hold God's presence, that, that God would choose this place to, to say, if you come to this place, you know you can meet with God. What a wonderful promise, what a wonderful invitation that the God of heaven, the creator said, if you come to this house, you come to this place, you can meet with me. You can have the confidence that your sins will be forgiven here. You can have the confidence that your requests will be heard here. It went, Solomon went so far as to say that, that if you were in exile and, and you realized that, that the reason that you've been exiled as a Jew is that God was judging the sin of the people, he said, direct your prayers to the temple. Pray towards this place that God would hear, cause them to turn, would heal them, would forgive them, would bring them back. This is the purpose of worship. And in a very broad sense, worship is where you and I commune with the living God. And for us as created beings, as contingent beings, that means that we, we offer ourselves and we render praise, glory, and honor unto the one who made us. For God, it means he brings sustenance and power and strength and, and, and healing and knowledge and wisdom and understanding. All this flows back to the worshipers that commune with their creator. This is what the temple was made to be. But Jesus said, you have made it into a den of robbers or, or a hideout for bandits. <laughs> we don't really think too much of bandits now hiding out, maybe perhaps behind a keyboard or behind a screen somewhere, some factory that's been turned into a hacking hub, right? Uh, but, but back in those days, if you were a thief, you needed a hideout, didn't you, right? You needed a place to take your stuff that you'd stolen. If you took it home and they went looking for you, they'd find it there. So the idea was that the, this hideout, this, this cave was, was a shelter that allowed you to perpetuate your injustice. Now, I want you to slow this down, really, just hear this. Jesus says this temple has become a shelter for people committing injustice. Jesus said this temple is not a place where people commune with God. This temple, Jesus says to them, is a place where people who are doing the wrong thing are allowed to hide and have protective cover. This is some people's problem with the church today. Is that the institution, the, 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 the place of worship, the place where people gather becomes a, a cover for people to perpetuate unrighteousness. Instead of connecting with God, it becomes a barrier not only to God, but a barrier to righteous living. A lot of people are hurt because that's all they see the church to be. If that's you this morning, you need to understand that God says his temple, whether it was that temple or whether it's us as the temple of God today, the temple is a place where people are to be able to commune with God, to hear from him. It's meant to be a safe place. It's not meant to be a cover. 
This is a power grab by Jesus. And notice it says the response was the people hung on his words. Jesus replaces this kind of operation, this religious system uh, that's, that's going on there, and he replaces it with teaching, teaching about God, spreading of the good news. And in that sharing, the temple is sort of being repurposed for what it was meant to be. Jesus is meeting with the people and he's sharing good news. That's what the church ought to be. That's what the temple was meant to be. A place where people could come and they could hear about God and they could hear the things that he has to say to them. And Jesus, as the true and rightful king, he is dispensing knowledge. He would say in another place, he would say that the queen of Sheba will rise up in the judgment and she will say to this generation, I went all this way to hear from Solomon, but there was someone greater than Solomon in your midst and you didn't want to hear what he had to say. Here is Jesus in an inversion. You see, when he, was, when he was 12 years old, back in Luke chapter 2, the last time he was in the temple, Jesus was the one asking questions. He was the one who was occupying the teachers. He was dialoguing with them. Now, here, Jesus comes back and it's been flipped. He has the authority. He holds the stick. He is now holding court. He's teaching. And the result is people are hanging on his words. Are you hanging on the words of Jesus? Jesus would say his words are like bedrock. You can build a house on it. You can build a foundation on it. You can hang your whole life on it. Is that how you view the words of Jesus? Or are the words of Jesus just sort of another ancient relic, another sort of part of our cultural and literary history? Yes, there's some ideas in there that we might want to borrow from and smuggle into our own worldview today, but really I'm not going to hang everything on the words of Jesus. But these people, as they listen to Jesus talk about God, they talk about the kingdom of God, it says they hung on the words, they attached themselves onto his words. It's a call to us today. Are we attached? Are we hanging on to the words of Jesus? If you're not, why not? And we move to the next scene. This is a longer video because it's going to cover the full... uh, the full section of this. Again, remember, watch for these four challenges. The challenge to his credibility, Jesus' invitation or initiation, excuse me, with the people, a challenge to them, with the parable of the tenants, and then the two traps that are set. So I want you to watch this now before we jump back in. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news, The chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? He replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, He will ask, why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, we don't know where it was from. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. 
Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said, so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right, and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity and said to them, Show me a denarius, whose image and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, Then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public. And astonished by his answer, they became silent. Some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her. And in the same way the seven died leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise. For he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, Well said, teacher. And no one dared to ask him any more questions. So Jesus has just caused quite a scene in the temple. And he is met directly after that with a challenge to his own authority. Again, the Australian would say, pull your head in. <laughs> the text sort of tames it down a bit. Jesus, by whose authority are you doing these things? We sort of read this, and if you've read the Gospels a number of times, you're like, okay, 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 yeah. We get it, they don't like Jesus. 
But you need to realize that this is the tension that's been building all along. They come to Jesus and they say, by what authority are you doing these things? Jesus responds with a question and he says to them, he says, I'll ask you a question. They said, who gave you this authority? He says, I'll ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it of heaven or of human origin? And we'll get to Jesus' question in just a minute. But just notice here, I just want to note sort of a tendency of human nature. Why is it that when, when change comes along, when, even when, when God's doing something, it, when, when something's happening that we don't understand or maybe, maybe don't like, we always pull the authority card, don't we? We always pull that out. Uh, let me see your permit. Who said you could do that? Who said you could move chairs at the back of the church? Who said you could go to this place or that place? Who said this? Who said that? We just default to this. I do it too. We, we, we have this tendency when, when things aren't going the way that we either expect them to go or think they should go, we just, we just grab for that authority card, don't we? I'd like to see your permit. Sometimes, and maybe you've been in churches like this, I pray this isn't us, but sometimes you're with other Christians and you feel like there is more sensitivity to people coloring outside the lines than there is sensitivity to what God's doing in the space. Have you ever felt that way? Here the Son of God has walked into the house of God and told them, reminded them of the purpose of this structure. I mean, look, let's face it, it's just a building if God's not there, right? It's just stones if God's not there. And here the Son of God walks in and he's told them, reminded them of the purpose of this. And they're hung up on, let me see your permit. Now obviously authority is important. Obviously procedures are important. Obviously protocol is important. But notice it becomes an easy excuse to dismiss the hand of God when it's working among them. It becomes convenient. So they, Jesus says, tell me, whose who's baptism? Is it of heaven or is it of human origin? He, Jesus just reduces it right down. They ask him an open-ended question and he goes for a black and white question. He says, is it this or is it this? And he focuses on John's baptism because John was the promised forerunner. And notice they're talking among themselves. If we say from heaven, they'll say, why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, the people are going to stone us because they thought John was a prophet. And so they're caught between their own assumptions, their own predetermined stance, and their own desire to save their own skin. They're caught in that. And so listen to what they say. We don't know where it was from. A thoughtful reader of Luke's gospel will remember that Jesus, as he's weeping over Jerusalem, this is just a few sentences before, as he's weeping over Jerusalem, he says, whoa, sorry, not whoa, he says, I better quote it exactly. He talks about the judgment, he says, they will dash you to the ground and the children within your walls, they will not leave one stone on another. You say, why is this happening? Because you did not recognize the time of God's coming. It's the same word. They didn't know. And here's the Pharisee saying, we don't know. Luke's trying to show you very clear links to what's happening. So Jesus says, I'm not going to tell you by what authority I do these things. He successfully deflects their challenge, successfully deflects their challenge. Then Jesus goes on the offensive, but Luke notes that he doesn't talk to the Pharisees. It's almost as if Jesus knows there's no point in talking to these people. We're in the pearls before swine territory with these ones. And so he addresses the parable to the people. And the parable is about the vineyard owner. It's a famous parable. The, the Pharisees perceive it's, it's told about them. And the image calls on the historical uh, relationship that God has, has had with his people. And it's a metaphor that's been used about God's people being a, a vine. The nation of Israel is a vineyard. And there's, there's a combination of looking back on the various prophets. And Jesus tells this parable. And it's pretty, pretty transparent to us now what he's saying. They don't listen to the prophets. They don't listen to the people that God sends. Finally, God sends his own son, my beloved, 
Interestingly enough, that's the same phrase that God used when he, he told Abraham to bring Isaac, the son you love. Here, Jesus, talking about this, this vineyard owner, sends the son he loves, and they will drag him outside the city, and they will kill him. Now, the crux of it comes in verse 13. When the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? Sorry, then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they'll respect him. When the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. Notice all the talking the, fairy, the, the leaders have been doing together. They talked the matter over. This is the heir. Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Now, Luke's parable puts the focus on those who were running the vineyard. He will come and he will kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. This is what the book of Acts is about, basically. This, what Jesus says right here gets fulfilled. Jesus is crucified. They lead him outside. After Jesus raises from the dead, guess what? Jerusalem is now run by the apostles. And now it is the church who is running the vineyard of God. God's vineyard is now being opened. It's being given over to others, not these religious leaders that Jesus is talking to. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid, heaven forbid, may it never be. Why do they say that? They say that because they know where this is pointing to. This is pointing to the upheaval of their whole system. They're already afraid of the Romans. They're afraid the Romans are going to take away their place, take away their privilege, take away their authority. And Jesus says here, he says, well, then tell me what it means about the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And at this point, the teachers of the law realize they're not getting anywhere. And so now they retreat to the background. What a coward move. What a coward move. They can't engage Jesus, so they, they bring other people in to, to set these traps. And the next two things are traps. The, the, the first one's a political trap. They send somebody up to ask Jesus a question about paying taxes. Does anybody here like paying taxes? I didn't think so, right? The same back then, you know. In some ways, people are people. You know, they don't want to pay taxes. And, and so they asked Jesus this question about paying taxes. Now, it wasn't a lot of money. This was sort of the, this was sort of the annual nod that, that, hey, Rome's in control. But that was the sticking point. It was that they had to give money every year to say that Rome's, Rome's in charge and Caesar's the boss. And, and they hated it. And so they tried to pin Jesus between the people and the political authority over him. What they're doing is they're setting a trap so that they get grounds upon which to bring allegations against Jesus to get rid of him. And to some extent, this is the path that they follow. But they realize after this encounter that Jesus isn't going to give them anything easy. And so he takes the coin, he says, let's look at the coin. What's on the coin? Oh, that looks like Caesar's inscription on the coin. Jesus says, give it to him and give to God's what, what is God's. You say, what bears the image of God? <laughs> We do. We do. So go to your job. Work hard at your job. Be a good student. Fulfill your covenant responsibilities to your wife, to your children. Fulfill those obligations. But bring your whole self to God. You belong to God. You bear his image, male and female, you bear his image. Bring that to God. Jesus says, I'm going to tell you what to do with that. Remember way back at the beginning of this message, we said Jesus is going to assert his authority over our own souls. He's going to say, I have jurisdiction here. This is him saying that. They're astonished and they become silent. So then they're like, you know what? All right. We're gonna, he, he's a pious man, he's a religious man, and a bit like they did to Daniel back in the Old Testament, we're going to catch him in his religion. And so they come with, they know Jesus believes in the resurrection. This group of people doesn't. And so what they try to do is they try to pin Jesus between his theology and the scripture. And they're trying to catch him out on violating or discrediting what Moses has said. 
Now Moses historically was the author of the first five books of the Old Testament called the Pentateuch or the Torah or the law. And so they're trying to get Jesus to say, well, that part in Leviticus where, where there's, you know, if, if the husband dies and, and the wife has a response, uh, uh, the wife can, can, can raise up offspring for him through the family line, which was a provision under the old covenant law. And they sort of create this absurd scenario. They're trying to pin Jesus between his belief in the resurrection and what Moses has written in the, in the law. They're trying to get him to violate one of those two things. And Jesus responds by taking them again to Moses and pointing that they really don't understand the scriptures. Because resurrection life, resurrection life has always been promised to those who belong to God. So much so that Jesus can say, when, when God appears to Moses at the burning bush, when he says he's the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, he's not saying, I was the God of these people and they've now ceased to exist. Yeah, I used to be their God, but they've, they've, de they've decomposed into matter. They've gone back into the universe. They've moved into this eternal soul of, of whatever. No, he says, I'm the God of these people. They continue to exist. And by the way, the evidence of that was in Moses. You don't know your Bible well enough, in other words, Jesus says to them. We can get into the nitty-gritty of all these things, but I want you to note what's happening here. This is all entirely about them pushing back against the authority of Jesus Christ. Human beings from the garden have resisted God telling them how they are to live and how they are to worship him. It is no different today. It doesn't matter if, you're, if you follow a pagan religion, if, if, you're, if you're into crystals and matter, if you're into astrology, if you're into Islam, Buddhism, if you're thoroughly secular and you're an atheist. Follow the line of authority. Here, God has said, my son, this man Jesus, has jurisdiction over people's souls. Notice they first directly challenge his authority. Then they ignore what Jesus says very plainly to them. And in the end, they're sending messengers because they can't face him themselves. I want to encourage you, if, if the Lord has come to you and you sense he's just, he's pressing into your life and he's saying, I want you to deal with me. I want you to deal with me. Maybe you had your whinge. Maybe you had your pushback and you said, God, I'm not going to do that. And you had your little, no, 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 I'm the captain of my own ship. I'm the one who's in charge here. And you had that sort of moment with God. And since then, you've sort of turned the volume down on Jesus. And you're relying on other people. You're relying on other books, other authors, other religions, other systems. You're relying on these people to punch holes and to, to catch Jesus out so that some way, somehow, he's not who he says he is. And all the while, he simply wanted them to deal with him. And the tragic thing is, from their own lips, they professed ignorance and they didn't do anything about it. We don't know, Jesus. We don't know the answer to your question. We don't know whether John's baptism was from God or not. And effectively, they say, we're going to punt this question and let the chips fall where they may. Well, Jesus says, if you punt on my authority in your life, that authority is going to come crashing down on you like a rock. Or you're going to trip over it and you're going to, you're going to find yourself devastated in pieces. But he hasn't given up on the people. And so he leaves them with one last question. Sorry, I totally lost track of the slides. So there you go. Three, four, there we go. <laughs> Messiah is the son of David. David himself declares in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? 
desire. Here in this final section, Jesus points to his divine heritage. Every king comes from a line. Every king comes from a lineage. Here, Jesus raises an interpretive problem. He raises an interpretive question from the scriptures. And I love this because they want to argue with him about the scriptures. Jesus says, great, we'll talk about scriptures. And he brings them to what amounts to a puzzling passage in the Old Testament where David in Psalm, I believe it's 118, better, get it, better check my facts. Psalm 110, sorry, Psalm 110. David in Psalm 110 quotes this phrase, says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, everyone knew the Messiah was gonna come from David's line, that was what was promised. And so the idea is, who is David talking about? How can David said, the Lord said to my Lord, who's greater than David? That's already existing. He talks as if this person already exists and, and, and they're, they're greater than him. You, you can see this is, this is a bit weird. What's the puzzle here? And Jesus raises the question, why is it that the Messiah is the son of David? If David calls him Lord, how then can he be his son? What's he doing? He's just baiting the hook one last time. He's baiting the hook one last time. And he says, you know, if you're really interested in knowing what the scriptures say, if you're really interested in understanding what God has revealed and making sure that it's all coherent, well, I'm going to give you this to chew on. Sink your teeth into this. And he baits the hook one last time, but he baits it in such a way that if they work through the problem, it's going to resolve questions of his identity. You see that? Their problem is from the beginning. Who gave you this authority, Jesus? Who said you could do these things? Who are you? Pull your head in, Jesus. And he leaves them chewing on a question that points them to a picture of the Messiah far greater than they could ever conceive. He wasn't just going to be simply a deliverer who would sack the Romans. He was going to be someone who had a divine heritage. In other words, his origins were from of old. <laughs> and yet he was the son of David. Big picture. How should we live? How should we live in light of this? Here we are, 2023, we're at Windsor District Baptist Church. We, we're, we're all here in some way because for some reason or another, we're interested in Jesus Christ. We just sung about how great it is, how wonderful he is. You might be tempted to hear this and say, you know what? Uh, I'm happy to grant Jesus his authority. Okay. Couldn't we just skip all the rest of this stuff and just said that? <laughs> But it's worth us thinking through, are we allowing Jesus to have the rightful jurisdiction? How should we live as his temple? In the New Testament, we read that the church is now the temple. Sometimes we misread that in Corinthians when Paul says, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We think, well, I've always considered my body a temple. This gives me more reason. Paul is telling me I need to eat better, I need to exercise more, I need to get more sleep, and, I, and, I, and it's okay to pursue my beauty treatments. Thanks, Paul. That's a very contemporary application of that text. No, that's not what he's saying. Paul is saying, you, plural, collectively, you are the temple. We are the temple. If Jesus physically walked through these doors right now, is he gonna be flipping anything over? What's he gonna be clearing out? What's he gonna be exposing? Are there things where he's saying, you know what, this, this right here, what you're doing, church, it's, it's a shelter, it's a cave, it's a hideout for your iniquity. You're, you're becoming a barrier and an obstacle. Church, what I've called you to be is a place where people can commune with God. I wanna ask you, can people be comfortably spiritual in your presence? 
Are you comfortable spiritually in the presence of others? Because the temple was the place you go to commune with God. Brothers and sisters, we ought to be the kind of people which, which if, if anything at all, leave people thinking that, you know what, I may not be interested in God, but if I was, if I was interested in finding out about God, these are the kind of people that I think I would hang out with. These are the kind of people I you know I could have conversations with. These are people who would let me pray publicly, whether I said the right things or not. It's also a place where the knowledge of God is dispensed. Isn't it instructive to us that what Jesus does, after he asserts his authority through that symbolic act, he engages in teaching because he knows that people need to know about God. Please don't think that because you draw breath, you know God. Drawing breath doesn't make you an expert on God. The promise is that the glory of the Lord the knowledge of the Lord will fill the earth as waters cover the sea. It hasn't happened yet. We're in process of bringing that out. People don't automatically know God and who he is. They may think they know who he is and what he's like, but it's not automatic. And it has been entrusted to us that we would reveal the character in the heart and the ways and the knowledge of God. You say, you want to know how to know God? I can't tell you much, but... But I know Jesus and I know he, know he knows everything. He has the answer. He reveals God to me. He tells me God is loving and kind. He tells me that there is a certain hope in a future, that, my, that, that, that the glory that awaits me isn't simply the absence of pain, but it is true glory of a resurrected body, a real resurrected tangible life for all eternity that spiritually I'm being renewed and transformed right now, that living water is flowing out of my soul and out of my life so that my, my countenance is just different. As his church, we ought to be a place that dispenses knowledge. My prayer, and I, I please, I ask you to pray this for this church. Please pray, pray this for this church. We, we say lots of prayers for this church, and I, I'm grateful for I think all of them, <laughs> but I, 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 I pray for this church, but this is what we should be praying. Pray that this church helps people know the Lord. When you pray for Windsor District Baptist Church, please pray, Lord, may WDBC be a place where people know the Lord, that helps people come to know the Lord. That's it. Then you can pray that God gives us money. Then you can pray that God, you know, fixes the pastor and the harebrained ideas. Then you can pray for all these other things. But please, first and foremost, make your prayer. The WDBC is a place where people know the Lord. And they come to know the Lord because that is what we are meant to be. Now, what about us individually? How should we live? I'm going to ask you. I've got to ask you. Do you hang on the words of Jesus? Do you know the words of Jesus? I'm not saying... Is Jesus' word a, a handhold for you? Like, I go through my life, and when I sort of get a bit imbalanced, I sort of lean over and say, ooh, thanks, I can have that handhold. I mean, do you, do you fix your whole life on that? I watched this documentary, I think it was Discovery Channel or whatever, and I'm watching these guys who are trying to climb Maru, and there's this, this shark fin peak in India. Maybe you've seen this. And, and this thing is like a sheer cliff, and they are camping for days suspended in the air. Have you seen this? I'm like, I'm not, yeah, the, I had your face. I don't know. A, sorry, I can't quite see who it is, but someone's got a face over there who's like, ah, that's exactly how I felt, right? Uh, you're watching them suspended in the air, hanging. And I'm like, how can you live in there? Brothers and sisters, that's what the world should look at when they see us. How can you be suspended? How can you suspend your whole life? You can hang everything, all your goods. You can sleep, eat, shout, clean yourself, everything you can do suspended on the words of Jesus. And we say, oh, it's all about your anchor point. Let me tell you. Let me tell you how deep that anchor goes. You could hang a semi-truck off that. Personally, as his people, are we hanging on his words? If you're, if you're fuzzy about it, just open the Bible, ask the Lord, say, Lord, I need to know the word of Jesus. Please make it clear to me. Finally, as a worshiper, how should we live?
Jesus told the parable of the vineyard owner, and it's a bit confusing sometimes. We think, oh, agriculture, you know, this guy sure cares a lot about his grapes, you know, he's going to kill people because the grapes aren't sort of yielding as much harvest as, as he wanted. That's a bit, bit precious, isn't he? But I want you to go back to creation and, and remember how God created the world. He said, he made everything after its kind, right? So that, you know, apple seeds grow apple trees. You sow wheat, it grows, it becomes wheat. Things reproduce after its kind. So the vineyard owner in this story, God is saying, he's looking at the temple and he's saying, I'm expecting something to reproduce after its kind. And so I ask you, what is humankind? It's the image of God. You see, that's the fruit he's looking for. You're supposed to reproduce after your kind. Men and women are made in the image of God. The fruit the vineyard owner is looking for is people to reflect the God that they worship. The promise is from Romans 12, chapter 1, in view of God's mercy, he's a great God. He's loved us so much. He's forgiven our sins in view of his mercy. Paul says, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. That means don't just put your money on the altar. Don't just put your time on the altar. It means get off the ground, climb onto the altar. Offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to him. Then you will be able to discern God's perfect will. Brothers and sisters, is a worship where you bring your whole self to God. And what will happen is, as you live your life as this sacrifice on the altar, yes, it means you can't go over there or over there and do that or do that, but what's happening while you're on the altar is you are being consecrated, you are being sanctified, you are being transformed, you are bearing fruit of repentance, you are beginning to look like Jesus Christ. May it be so with us. Father in heaven, will you hear our prayers, the things that we don't know how to say to you, the sin that maybe we've been covering, the, the schemes that we're running to reject your authority. Lord, we just lay them down and we just say, have your way in us. Father, would you receive our worship today? May we be changed as we offer ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen.